And I'm telling you that if it wasn't for the experience that he had of those people, no amount of sermons from the front, from the pastor saying, God loves you, God cares for you, God has a plan for you, none of that wouldn't have mattered if it wasn't first modeled by godly people. Welcome to the weekly sermon at Gateway. My name is Jason McNabb. In our current Firm Foundation series, we are exploring spiritual disciplines, the habits and behaviors that drive and shape our hearts as we strive to grow and live in Christ. You can find more information about this teaching series and our church's ministry at gatewaycrc.org. And now here's this week's message. I love the local church. I want to tell you a story this morning about a boy that I knew who grew up in a troubled home. His father, by the age of 13, was addicted to painkillers and to alcohol, and later in his life, he became addicted to cocaine, and that powerful combination led to his untimely death. His mother was sexually assaulted as a teenager And that carried forward in her life and even into her adult years where she was constantly looking for affirmation in men in her life. These two people gathered together to form a marriage bond, but it didn't last for very long, only for a few years. After which, their life went from bad to worse, and it started spiraling out of control. This young boy lived with his mother, And as I shared with you already, she was looking for affirmation in the lives of other men, so there was constantly a different man in this boy's life. And many of those men were physically and sexually abusive to his mother, which filled him with rage. He was so angry. Eventually, his older brother and, or his older sister and his younger brother went into government-assisted foster homes, but there he remained with his mother, and he was confused and conflicted and filled with incredible rage. At the age of 12, or by the age of 12, he had already been smoking and drinking for two years. And at the age of 12, he started attending a local church, but there he was conflicted too, because his experience of local churches was always the same. His mom would bring him from church to church to church to church to church, and the outcome was always the same. She would eventually open up to someone and tell her story, the pain of her past, the pain of her present. It would take a couple of weeks. The grapevine would do its thing. She would discover that her confidence was broken, and she would leave, and she would try a different church. And so for this 12-year-old boy, his experience of the local church is that they were snobbish, gossipy, clicky, and because of that, what could the church possibly do for him? But he started attending this church by himself because his mother had given up at that point. But he still wanted to give it a try. But he was so conflicted, and he was so tired, and the question he kept asking himself was this, What possible help could the church have for me? He was a 12-year-old boy who felt trapped, who had no hope, who wanted just to scream out, I need help. 
but he was too afraid to ask. He was too afraid to ask. He was filled with hatred and rage. And at this point, his aspirations were not very high. (laughs) It wasn't to be an honor student. It wasn't uh, to get into the right college or university or to go to grad school. It wasn't to marry the woman of his dreams or to have children of his own or uh, to get a mortgage and to own his own house or to get a good paying job or to work at a church. No, his life was not on an upward trajectory. It was just spiraling down. So let, let me just ask you a question. What was going to change the trajectory of this young boy's life? It wasn't some government-assisted program. It wasn't whoever was going to be newly elected into office, whether it be liberal or NDP or progressive conservative. It wasn't a a business that was going to come up with this this new idea that was going to revolutionize his life. It wasn't the placebos that he was using, trying to fit in with his classmates, whether it be sports or trying to act funny or trying to be extremely nice on the straight and narrow so that other parents and friends would accept him. It wasn't any of those things. I am convinced that the only thing that could change that boy's life was the local church. And not the church as institution, but the church as organism, the church as a community, the church as a family. That's the only thing that could change his life. And so this church community at the age of 12 would come to know this young boy and they would put their arms around him They would enfold him, they would pray for him, they would invite him into their homes, they would love him, they would care for him, and there he would experience the lived out gospel, the great and incredible love of God manifested through his people. And I'm telling you that if it wasn't for the experience that he had of those people, no amount of sermons from the front, from the pastor saying, God loves you, God cares for you, God has a plan for you, none of that wouldn't have mattered if it wasn't first modeled by godly people who loved him, who cared for him, and who modeled what it looked like to live out the gospel in real and tangible ways with relationships that were real and were lasting and were rich. I am convinced for this young boy, the only hope that he had was the local church. And I share this all with you because I am convinced that God wants to do exactly the same thing here. It is my prayer and it is my hope that God would use us in such a way that we would have countless stories like this boy that I once knew. That the local church is the only thing that we find in scripture where God promises that he will build and bless. That other nations will rise and fall, other kingdoms will rise and fall, but the kingdom of God stands forever. That the church will remain even while everything else is unstable. And that the only way that we can do that, the only way that we can fully live out what it means to be the church is if we covenant ourselves to one another, if we care for the hurting and the broken within our midst, and that we would realize that that is the calling upon our lives.
More on that kid a little bit later. We are in a sermon series this morning called A Firm Foundation, and the whole idea is that we are trying to understand more fully what it means to be a disciple who is devoted to Jesus and to live out our calling as Christians. And so I've shared with you for the last two weeks that every single church since the ascension of Jesus has had the same mission. You've heard it already this morning in the context of the baptism of baby Skylar, right? When Jesus says these words in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples. Go and make disciples is the mission of the church. It's not optional. It's not something that some churches do and other churches say, no, we want to have a, a different distinctive and focus on something else. It's not up for debate. This is the essence and the mission of the church, that we are to go and make disciples. That is the calling upon our lives. And so every single church has a similar pithy statement that alludes to Matthew chapter 28, the way that we our mission is helping people to love and serve Jesus. Helping people to love and serve Jesus. But to understand our mission, you have to understand how we believe that happens. And we believe that God's mission is cultivated by living the life of a Jesus follower. And so you've heard me say for the last two weeks, it's not just about our thinking it's about our behavior. We cannot say that God has taken our hearts of stone, turned them into a heart of flesh, but we have remained unchanged any more than we can say that I've been hit by a freight train and remain unchanged. God is always changing us from the inside out, from the heart to the hands. He's always leading us in that direction. And so if if the mission is asking the question, why do we exist? Then the point of this series in understanding our vision is to ask ourselves, how do we carry out that mission? What does it look like, practically speaking, to follow Jesus? And we want to help you answer that question as clearly as possible. Here's why. Because if the purpose of the church is to help people to love and serve Jesus, if the purpose of the church is to go and make disciples, if the purpose of the church, as we saw last week in Acts chapter 15 and 16, is that there would be more disciples and better, more cultivated disciples, then we have to ask ourselves, what are the catalytic environments that God uses to grow his people? What are the behaviors that we ought to follow so that we can live out our faith as honestly and as transparently as possible? And so the vision at Gateway is three things. Last week, we looked at what it means to be biblically serious. This week, we're going to be looking at what does it look like to be community-driven. And next week, Lord willing, we're going to ask ourselves, what does it look like to be relentlessly missional? So this week is community-driven. And when we say we're trying to be community-driven, here's what we're trying to communicate. We want to live out our faith as fully as we possibly can with one another. We want to forgive as we have been forgiven. We want to live as transparently as possible. We want to live out the roughly 66 one another commands, not advices, but commands of Scripture that, inter that tell us how we ought to interact with one another. And only in so doing do we live out what it means to be the church. And to do that, we're going to be looking at Ephesians 
chapter four. So if you have your Bibles, turn there with me, Ephesians chapter four. If you don't know where that is, there's a table of contents at the beginning of your Bible. Or you can go probably about three-fourths through your Bible. You're going to find one of four big books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, then Romans, then First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians. Find Ephesians chapter 4. And while you're looking for that, I hope you can see by now that the only way for us to be biblically serious is if we do so in the context of community while living out our mission. And the only way that we can be community-driven is if we do so understanding our gospel distinctives that we're taking the Word of God seriously as we live out our mission. And the only way that we can be relentlessly missional is if we adhere to Scripture's script and we do so in the context of community. So these things have to be held together. It's more like turning a diamond and you see different facets and features and colors that interact with the light. That's what we're doing. We're just turning the diamond. But these three, these three things cannot be separated from each other. And I think you're going to see that again this morning as we look at Ephesians chapter 4. So let's look at this together. Look at the first verse with me. It says, as a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Live a life worthy of the calling you've received. God has changed your heart of stone. He's turned it into a heart of flesh. Now what does it look like to live that out? This is a behavioral action. It's not just our belief. It's not just our thinking. But what does it look like to live out the calling that we have received? And in the next couple of verses, he's going to give us two things. He's going to identify two things that we have to be unified in, in the context of community, in order to do this well. So let's look at the first one, starting at verse 2. It says, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in, what's the word? Help me out. In love. In love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And so the first thing, the first thing I've noted in your note sheet is we have to be unified in love. And here's what I find so remarkable about this. When you read the first verse, it says, live a life worthy of the calling you've received. That seems like a personal mandate. Like, Justin, you need to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Therefore, and then he starts talking about how we have to be unified in the faith. See, Paul, it's not a question to Paul whether or not we need to be gathering together as a church community. It's an assumption. It's built into everything that he says. The only way that you can be uh, living out the calling you've received is if you have unity with the people of God, with the congregation in love. And then he continues in that theme. Let's look at verse 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all, through all, and in all. So here's the way that I, I put this. We also need to be unified in truth. In truth. In doctrine. In an understanding of what God has done and what God is doing and how he is leading his people. Another way we could say these two things, we have to be unified in love. That's like saying we have to be unified in our community-drivenness. 
And then he says we have to be unified in truth. That means we have to be unified in our biblical seriousness. Those are the ways that he is framing this. We have to be biblically serious. We have to be community driven. We have to be unified in love. We have to be unified in truth. These are the things that we absolutely need as the people of God. And, and this becomes even more clear as we start in verse 11 and we read through his roadmap or his vision for how the church should conduct himself. And I just have to get a bit of a forewarning. If, if I get really excited, it's because this is the chapter that I wrote my dissertation on. So I've spent a couple of years reading Ephesians chapter 4. And I might get excited and you're welcome or I'm sorry. One of those two things. So there's going to be five questions that we are going to see asked and answered and they're going to give us a roadmap for how Paul sees the church conducting itself in a local context. So here's the first question that I want to lay out before you. What did Christ give to his church? What did Christ give to his church? And the answer is found in verse 11. So Christ himself gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Stop right there. So here's what we see. What Christ gave the local church is gifted leaders or gifted people. The apest here that we see, the first letter A, the apostles. Apostles are people who were disciples of Jesus, walking with Jesus, who witnessed his three-year ministry, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. Those are the apostles. And so we no longer have apostles today because there's no one in this room who witnessed with their own eyes or heard with their own ears the ministry of Jesus. But then we get to prophets. And oftentimes when we think of prophets, we think of them as, as predictors of the future. But really a prophet is simply someone who proclaims the truth. But because when you proclaim the truth in a dry and desert land, people often see it as a prophetic voice. Let me give you an example of that. Parents, you could tell your kids, don't put your hand on that burner, it's hot. And if you do it, you'll burn your hand. And they go, mm, I don't know if that's so true. Then they put their hand on the burner, their hand burns, and they go, how did you know that? You know the future. And they're like, no, that's just like what happens. And so that's what a prophet is doing, proclaiming the truth. If you live this way, this is how things will turn out because God made us different. He gave us divine directives for how we should live our life. A prophet is someone who proclaims the truth in a dry and weary land. But they're often perceived as predictors of the future. Then there's evangelists. Evangelists are, are often noted as people who we might think of as missionaries today. They help build and plant churches. They establish a firm foundation. And then once things are settled, they often move on. And they go to the next place. The apostle Paul was an evangelist. He would go from place to place, town to town, helping build churches. That's what an evangelist is. And then finally, we see shepherds, pastors, and teachers. And it's interesting here. There's a bit of a debate. There's a conjunction in the Greek. And it's unsure whether or not shepherds and teachers are the same thing. If it's a hyphen or if it's two distinct things. But at any rate, I think what we should think of here is similar to local pastors. But there's distinctiveness, right? What I like to refer to as lamb ministry and flock ministry. A shepherd is someone who is devoted to lamb ministry. Churches are built on lamb ministry. One-on-one -on -one care 
caring for individuals, loving them, hearing their stories. But we also have leaders or teachers like Moses, like Joshua, who is leading a macro group of people. But the church needs both. The church needs shepherds, pastors, and teachers. And so those are the distinct leaders that Christ has given the church. And then the next question that we have to ask ourselves is, why did God give gifted leaders? We see that in verse 12. Look at this with me. He gave these leaders to equip his people for works of service. Some translations in your Bible say works of ministry. So that's the answer to question two. Why did God give gifted leaders? To equip God's people for works of ministry. To equip God's people for works of ministry. The purpose is not that uh, the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the shepherds and the pastors and the teachers would do all of that themselves, but that they would be primarily equippers to equip all the people to do works of ministry together. So then we can ask ourselves, why equip people to do the work? Why not just do it themselves? Like, why is that their primary role, to equip God's people? Keep reading in verse 12. So that the body of Christ might be built up. And so the answer is to build up the church. To build up the church. So God gave gifted people to the church to equip the church so that they might be built up. And this is a radical idea. I know that because we are a Christian Reformed church, many of you here are familiar with the Reformation led by Martin Luther. But what you might not know is that most oftentimes we think that the Reformation was built on the finer points of doctrine between Martin Luther and the Roman Catholic Church, which it was. But the main thrust of the Reformation, the reason why the Reformation took off like a storm is because of this one idea. Martin Luther said this, that a mother changing pooping diapers, a custodian moving a mop, a CEO engaged in business, a farmer out in the field are engaged in equally spiritual practices to that of the Pope. Now think about that in a 16th century context, just how radical of a statement that was. And that's what revolutionized the Reformation. This idea that all y'all are priests, that every single person in this room is a minister doing the work of ministry, doing the work of service. And so let me just give you an example of what I just like to refer to as the unspoken vision within the church. And I'm going to use a sports analogy. I'm, I'm sorry if you don't like basketball and this goes over your head, but hopefully my explanation will be thorough enough that you know where I'm going with this. So let's think about the Golden State Warriors, uh, the basketball team that has had the most success over the course of the last decade. Using that vision, the way that we often think of a council is they're kind of like the coach, Steve Kerr. So I got a picture of Steve Kerr there, right? And so they're the ones who are on the bench giving directions. And based on that vision, then the pastor and the staff, they're the players. So we got a picture here of Steph Curry, right? And if you don't know, Steph Curry is a superstar. He's probably one of the best basketball players who ever lived, and he has four championship rings. So the pastors and the staff, they're doing the ministry. They're playing the game. So then the question is, where's the congregation? 
What's the congregation doing? Well, they're in the stands. They're the fans. They're the consumers of the game. The consumers of the ministry. We minister to you. We play the game. We entertain you. We showcase our gifts. And you consume the ministry. And you can see just how alive this may be in, in many different churches. And there may even be some people here who say, you know, like, I, I really feel like a lot of people in churches today are consumers. Is it possible that the reason why there's so many consumers is because we treat them like consumers? Is it possible that we are doing exactly what we ought not do when we try to build up the body of Christ? And so what I want to propose to you is a new vision. Because with this vision in particular, here's what happens. We burn out pastors. That's the first one. We turn members into consumers. And we hijack the gifts of the Holy Spirit that were intended to be given to all the people, not just a select few. The vision of Ephesians 4 is to equip Christ's people for the work of ministry for the building up of the body of Christ. So let's once again look at the Golden State Warriors with this new Ephesians 4 vision. I would say it goes a little bit like this. The council, they're kind of like the owner. So here's a picture of Peter Goober. He is the owner of the Golden State Warriors. The council, especially the elders, they are the ones who oversee the ministry of the church. That Greek word presbuteros, which is the word we use for elder, it literally means overseer, the overseer. So they're the people high in the sky, 30,000 foot ahead, ensuring that doctrine is the way it should be, that things are done in good order, that the preaching ministry, I don't say anything that's heretical, that everything is going the way it needs to, that the sacraments are done well, that worship is done well, that the congregation is cared for, they're overseeing that ministry. Then what's the role of the pastor? I would say that they're like the Steve Kerr. They're the coach player. So one thing you need to know about Steve Kerr is before he became a coach, he won five rings as a player. And now he's won four rings as a coach. Pastors are primarily equippers, equipping Christ's people to do the works of ministry. But they also do the work themselves. So they're the coach player. So then what is the congregation? The congregation primarily are the players all y'all, you're the Steph Currys. You're the ones who are doing the ministry on an ongoing basis. And then the, the last question we have to ask ourselves is, okay, then who's in the stands? Who are the fans, so to speak? That is the watching world. The people that we minister to as we minister together. That is the calling that we see in Ephesians chapter four. And so just think with me. This is the reason why for the one Pastor Marcel that we have, and we're so thankful for that. Where are you, Marcel? I think he's helping in kids' church this morning. But for the one Pastor Marcel that we have, we have more than 50 young adult and youth leaders leading these weekly ministries. And he doesn't lead a small group of any of those kids. He has 50 people at the helm who are doing that. For every one Pastor Adam, there's 47 life group leaders there's 18 care team leaders who are doing the work of ministry. For every one Pastor Jason, there's 43 praise team and production members who are leading you in worship. 
For everyone, Justin, do you know that there are 412 people who are leading a distinct ministry at Gateway? All, and that's just in the four walls of this building, let alone the contributions that you make in the community. And so one of the things I'm just so excited about is how this congregation has caught this vision that we are all to be ministers, leading God's people, leading one another in the context of a community so that we can grow and thrive. And I was just so blessed by Leanne's video because we saw that on Shining Display as she noted key leaders, volunteer leaders who have helped equip her faith. That's what we can do as the body of Christ. And so here's the fourth question I want to lay at your feet. How do we know when we've done it? How do we know when people have been equipped? Look at verse 13. It says, so that the body of Christ might be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of of Christ. And so here's what we see. The way that we know that we've achieved this is if we have unity in three things. Unity in faith, unity in knowledge, and unity in maturity. Sidebar, this is the reason why I encourage you every single week to bring your Bibles. Because the last thing that I want for you here or for any uh, Christian anywhere is to be a consumer of the pastor's ministry. I want you to care far more about the words of Jesus than the words of Justin. And I, I want you to grow accustomed to being a discerning person so that whether you're here or you're listening to a sermon on YouTube or you're listening to a podcast or you're talking to a friend, you would have the ability to go, I don't know if that's what the Bible says. I'm, I'm, not, so, I'm not so sure about that. That we become mature in our own right. That we become the full measure of what God longs for us to be in knowledge, in unity, and in maturity. And then the fifth and final question, what does this maturity look like? What's the context for this? Look at verse 14. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is, Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Circle, highlight, underline. As each part does its work. So what does this maturity look like? When is it achieved? When we are growing together. When everyone here is growing together. That's the vision of the local church. And so just like last week, we have to ask ourselves, practically speaking, what does it look like to do this well, both individually and corporately as a church? And you might recall last week when we talked about being biblically serious, I laid out two things before you. One thing you can do on your own. And one thing that we can do as the body of Christ. The thing you could do on your own is what we call God time. That's time spent alone daily in fellowship with God. Putting on um, the disciplines of following Jesus. The two primary ones I would encourage you to do is that you would read your Bible every day. You would devote yourself to reading scripture every day. And that you would devote yourself to prayer every day. 
It doesn't mean you have to read through the whole Bible in a year. It's just that you read the Bible every day. Get into his word. Know what the word says. Be and abide with God. And then the second one is that we would do this together. Every Sunday we would have gather time where we would worship weekly on the weekend. And my challenge to you is that we would commit to do this every week. Every week. Because there's something, that mirac- something miraculous that happens when we gather together as God's people and we invoke the Holy Spirit to lead us in worship and we set the stage for something that all of us are going to see when we go into glory and we stand around the throne room of God and we bow down and we worship the Lamb who was slain. We get to live into that spiritual reality today, right now, as we worship together. And so we have two for being community-driven but one we're going to look at next week. So we're only going to look at one today. And this is the one that I want to lay at your feet when it comes to being community-driven as a corporate body of Christ. We say it like this, group time, that each person would connect in a group. At Gateway, we call these life groups. There's nothing special in particular about this or about these. We just believe that there are a few necessary ingredients that lead people to grow. So we say it like this. If you Velcro people to God's word and to one another, they'll grow. If you Velcro God's people to God's word and to one another, they'll grow. So here's what life groups are all about. Life groups are weekly living room conversations to help you figure out what to do on Monday or whatever day you meet with what you are learning on Sunday. That's the goal. So as we talk about the Bible on the weekend, we can then gather together in groups, we can roll up our sleeves, and we can ask ourselves, what does that look like, practically speaking, to live this out in my work, in my business, in my marriage, in my parenting, in the pivotal circumstances that I'm walking through, in the challenging circumstances that I'm wading through right now, and to allow other Christians to speak into your life, to allow what Scripture refers to as iron sharpening iron, so that we can sharpen one another so that we can grow in our faith in the context of those environments do you remember the quote that i shared with you last week from ted bolzinger he said these words true and enduring christian community is a foretaste of heaven it is the essence of discipleship the enduring witness to an unbelieving world and an absolute necessity for human transformation But truth be told, Bolsinger is thinking about something slightly different than what you and I might be thinking about right now. Because he's talking about what I like to refer to as circle environments, not row environments. So when we think of the word church, that is the word ecclesia. Say ecclesia with me. Ecclesia. The word ecclesia literally means this, the gathering of the called. The gathering of the called. So we're called in, and then we're sent out. We're gathered in, and then we're scattered. We're encouraged and equipped, and then we're sent out to do the work of God in the world. But in the context of the first century church, the church almost exclusively would gather together in homes, in circle environments, not in row environments. So what happens in circles that doesn't happen in rows? We all talk. 
Man, like, thanks so much for coming today and listening to me talk, right? But in circle environments, we all share the burden of communicating with one another, discerning, asking questions, grappling with things, sharing our heart. That's the environment for us to be able to grow. And I wonder if this might be your next step. There's a couple reasons why we believe so strongly in this. Let me just share them with you. The first one is this. They are crucial for new people. They're crucial for new people. Let me just share with you one of the most common responses that I hear from new people who are not connected in groups in any way, shape, or form. I I heard this in my previous congregation, and I also hear it at Gateway. It goes a little bit like this. Gateway is such a friendly place. It's just really hard to make friends. Do you hear what they're saying? Because there's something distinct about new people when they gather together in a Christian community, they're not just looking for preaching and worship. Because let me tell you something, I'm not trying to disparage myself, but there's better preaching on YouTube. There's far better worship and preaching on YouTube. And so if you want to have that, like you can go get it. What makes the church the church? The people the people of God. And so if there's a new person who is displaced or disconnected or doesn't have family in the area, what are they looking for in a church? The family. They're looking for the family of God, that they can grow together, encourage one another, challenge each other. And so groups are critical for new people. And you might say, well, that's, that's good for them. Like, I think it's really good for new people to go and get to know new people. That's great. But here's the problem. In order for new people to connect with mature believers, I need mature believers to connect with new people. Do you see how that works? So it's going to take a village. It's so important for all of us to take our part for us to create space for people to become the family of God with one another. Number two, Our goal is not to inundate your life with a a million different things. We want to do a few things with energy and with excellence. And you'll hear more on this next week, but let me just give it to you right now. There's there's three things we're asking you for, for you to do. Number one, to join us weekly for worship on the weekend. Number two, that you would consider joining together in a group Meaningful relationships centered on God's word and prayer. And then number three, which we're going to talk about next week, that you would consider ways that you can step in and use your gifts to bless the whole community, as we already saw in Ephesians 4. Only when we're all ministering to each other do we invoke what it means to be the body of Christ. We want to do these three things with energy and with excellence. And that means for the rest of your time, you're building relationships in your community. You could join a soccer league or a hockey league or or whatever else and get to know some unchurched and unbelieving people. So we want to do a few things with energy and with excellence. And then number three, we want to create an environment where people have regular, guided, spiritual conversations. Because more often than not, this doesn't just randomly happen. We need intentional spaces to have these sorts of conversations. And so let me just walk you through the ABCs. This is what we're trying to do in groups. Letter A, we want to apply the Bible to life. We want to apply the Bible to life. We want to ask ourselves, in light of what we just read on Sunday, how do I apply that in my life? What does it look like, practically speaking, to follow Scripture's script and then to allow other Christians to speak into that? 
Letter B, we want to build authentic relationships. One of the things that I can share with you personally is that when Julie and I moved here, as many of you know, we, we don't have any family here. You are our family. And even more significantly, our family has become our life group. One of the, the worst days of my life was when my daughter, Jaina, had her brain surgery. But let me tell you, in, in that season, what our life group did for us, they prayed over us, they gave us tangible gifts, they gave us a big basket full of food, they made us meals on the back end, they enfolded us and cared for us and did things that in no way, shape, or form could the whole congregation have done, but they were able to do because they knew us intimately, and we know them in that way too. And so we want to build those authentic relationships. And very much tied to that, let her see, we want to care for each other. We want to care for each other. Think about this for a moment. If the full extent of a marriage, let's just say, was going to the movie theater Sunday mornings at, let's just say, 10 a.m. together, and then watching a flick, and then going out into the lobby, maybe enjoying some popcorn and having a, a good conversation with each other, and then leaving and not seeing each other for the rest of the week. They'd still have their rings on, they'd still be married, but they weren't fully living into the covenant vows that they've made with each other. In the same way, if we want to be able to truly care for each other, it's going to take a four-letter word, time. Time. Where we are committed to each other, that we would care for each other, that we would bear one another's burdens. So here's a question I want to ask you. Which of these three things would be most helpful for you right now in your spiritual journey as you consider applying the Bible to your life, as you consider building authentic relationships, as you consider longing to care and be cared for one another, and also which one is the missing element in a church that doesn't have groups, where the full extent of the church is gathering together in rows and then going home, and then in rows, and then going home, and then in rows, and then going home? What happens in that environment? So you might be wondering, what happened to that 12-year-old kid that 12-year-old boy who was filled with rage and with anger and with discontent. Well, I can tell you for the next six years in that church environment, he was enfolded, he was loved, he was cared for, he was encouraged. And by the age of 16, there were a, a few adult leaders who said to him, have you ever considered that maybe the Lord is leading you to become a pastor? And he laughed, oh my goodness, he laughed. He thought that was what a joke, what a silly joke. But they were right, and one day he would become a pastor. And I think at least half of you in this room have begun to realize that he's your pastor. The local church changed my life. The local church changed my life. And you know what's so cool about it? It's very similar to what Leanne shared with us already. I can't tell you one person who changed my life. But I can tell you the senior pastor, John Visser, changed my life. I can tell you my guidance counselor, Brent Smink, changed my life. I can tell you my youth leader, John Roper, changed my life. I can tell you that these two godly parents, Ben and Roberta Luchabor, they changed my life. But it took a village. 
It took a village of God's people stepping in, using their gifts, inviting people in, caring for each other, for God to change my heart. And if it wasn't for that local church living out their gospel distinctives in real and life-giving and tangible ways, my life would be very, very different. I love the local church. And I pray, Gateway, that we would have a number of iterations, countless stories like that 12-year-old boy right here in this place of hurting people, displaced people, sad and lonely and frustrated and aggravated and beaten down people who would come to this place and they would find mature believers and they would enfold them and they would love them and they would care for them and they would see Jesus. They would see Jesus through you but it will take a village and it will take a congregation that is not only biblically serious, but is also community driven, who loves people and longs to see God do amazing things in the lives of his children. So one more time, let me ask you this question. Would you choose today to place yourself in an environment in which God grows people. It could be the decision today for you to choose to do daily devotions, to open up your Bible, to pray every single day. It could be a decision to commit to a local church and to worship with us every week on the weekend as we invoke the promises that God makes when we gather as his people. But it could be a decision where you say, you know what, I'm, I'm gathering together and worship, but I need people to speak into my life. I need to get into a group. Would you consider making these practical decisions today so that God would lead his people? Consider back to that fifth question, and then we'll close. That fifth question, what does maturity look like? According to the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 4, he says, maturity looks like when we are growing together. And my prayer is that we would grow together. You've been listening to the latest message in our Firm Foundation series, focused on the practical habits and spiritual behaviors that lead to growing in Christ. You can find more information about this series and our church's ministry at gatewaycrc.org. I'm Jason McNabb. Please join us next time on the weekly sermon at Gateway.